Hey, it's Martine. Before we start today's show, I wanted to take a second to introduce someone that you're going to hear a little bit more in the future. Hi, Alahe. Hey, Martine. So this is my colleague and friend, Alahe Azadi, and she will be hosting some episodes of Post Reports in the coming weeks. We are very excited to have her. I am very excited to have her. I think at this stage of the pandemic, we can be honest that burnout is a real thing. And I'm so grateful to have someone to share a little bit of the load with, to work on some of my own longer term stories, and also to hear some of Alahe's stories. So Alahe, thank you for being here. Yeah, I'm I'm really happy to be here. You know, I, I'm normally a media reporter, and so I spend a lot of my time interviewing journalists. So I'm mm. excited to be doing that in your seat and to hear about all the stories going on, you know, around the country, around the world. I love asking reporters questions. I love to hear that. That's <laughs> my favorite thing about this job. So you're going to love it. Yeah. So, Alahe, I would love to hear a little bit more about the story that we're going to be talking about in today's show. Yeah, so this is a, a story about a young man named Amir Locke in Minneapolis, Minnesota, who was killed in, in February during a pre-dawn no-knock raid carried out by police. And, you know, we all have heard the name George Floyd. We're coming up on the anniversary of his death, actually. And I wanted to talk with Holly Bailey, who is a reporter for The Post in Minneapolis about this case, where it stands and and what's happening in Minneapolis. That sounds fascinating. I am looking forward to hearing more. So here's the show. Let me first acknowledge, like Mayor Fry, the loss and pain in our community. These events unfold in seconds, but the trauma is long lasting. That's Minneapolis interim police chief Amelia Hoffman back in February after the fatal police shooting of Amir Locke. A young man lost his life and his friends and family are in mourning. Community members are in pain and have questions and rightfully so. And the course of the lives of our officers has been changed forever. It's a sobering moment. Amir Locke was over at his cousin's girlfriend's apartment, asleep on the couch, when a SWAT team barged in. They had gotten what's called a no-knock warrant as part of a homicide investigation, though Locke was not a suspect in that case. The SWAT team entered. Amir Locke was sleeping on a couch. This is based on body camera footage that we've seen. The video shows um, SWAT team members entering the apartment just before 7 a.m. Um, on February 2nd. It shows Amir Locke wrapped in a blanket, sleeping on a couch, appearing to wake up, and a bright light's in his face. And then the video shows a gun in his hand, and that's almost immediately followed by gunshots. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent based in Minneapolis. And we know now, based on further reports, that Amir Locke was hit several times, including in the face, in the chest, in the shoulder. He had a graze wound to his wrist, and he died. For a lot of people in Minneapolis, Amir Locke's death speaks to the deep distrust between the community and police. And this week, we found out that the officer who shot Amir Locke, Officer Mark Hanneman, will not be charged. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Elahe Izadi. It's Thursday, April 7th. Today, unpacking the decision not to charge police in the killing of Amir Locke 
and what that might mean for the future of no-knock warrants. As we announced this morning, we have determined that under the precedent and the laws that we have, we cannot file criminal charges. Current law only allows us to evaluate the case from the perspective of a reasonable police officer. After many, many weeks of waiting, prosecutors, including Attorney General Keith Ellison, announced that they would not be charging the officer who fired the fatal shots, who is Minneapolis officer Mark Henneman. And that language is from the Fourth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and relevant cases and statutes. We're not allowed to evaluate the case from the perspective of the victim. With all the available evidence, we would not be able to prove in court that Officer Henneman's use of force was not authorized under the law beyond a reasonable doubt. So, Holly, what is the mood like in Minneapolis, especially after everything the city has been through with the killing of George Floyd and the protests that followed? It feels much like it has felt the last almost two years. We're almost to the two-year anniversary of the killing of George Floyd. And the city woke up again this morning, another killing of a person of color by the police here is hanging over the city. There was a lot of outrage in this decision. A lot of people are questioning why there was a no-knock warrant in the first place because the Minneapolis mayor, Jacob Fry, initially claimed last year that he had banned them. It turned out that that wasn't quite true. So there was a question of why that warrant was even happening. And there was a question of why he was shot You know, his parents have said that he had a license to carry a firearm, that he had a legal gun, that he had no criminal record. And in fact, Attorney General Keith Ellison said, described him as a victim, but they said that they could not ethically charge Mark Hanneman because under laws that give police officers sort of a lot of power in the heat of the moment. Um, They said that he acted as a reasonable officer would do, firing after he felt a threat on his life. There's a lot here. Putting aside for now the question of whether this warrant ever should have been issued, what would have it taken for authorities to bring charges against this officer? When they say that the law wouldn't support it, what would this officer had to have done or what evidence would they have to have seen for it to reach that threshold? It's very tricky. You know, essentially it comes down to is that there are constitutional protections for police officers that give them wide latitude and protect what they do, you know, in terms of them acting in the heat of the moment. The language that everyone uses is what would an objective, reasonable police officer do? And one of the sort of sticking points about this case and why there's such outrage, especially among the Black community here in Minneapolis, is that they argue that they sort of stand back and look at the circumstances of this, of someone sleeping and you hear someone racing into your house and you have a gun and you have this gun to protect yourself. And what are the rights that a person who has that gun legally, you know, if how would they have reacted? And so there was a lot of questions yesterday put to the prosecutors about, does this basically just give police officers a right to kill? And, you know, that's why this is such a sticking point and why this case is so deeply emotional. Holly, can you tell me a little bit more about who Amir Locke was? Amir Locke was a 
22-year-old black man. He grew up here in the Twin Cities. He was a musician. His parents said that he was trying to pursue a music career and in fact was going to move to Texas where his mother lives to kind of continue that career. He had been working recently as a DoorDash driver. And in like many cities, there's been a lot of crime here in Minneapolis, especially an increase in carjackings and robberies targeting food delivery drivers. And his parents said that he had recently decided because he was doing this work, he got a gun, got licensed to carry, and that's why he had a firearm to protect himself while he was doing his job. When they've spoken about him, they've said, you know, we raised him to be aware of being a person of color in the Twin Cities, which has a reputation of, you know, racist policing practices. They said that they raised him to do the right thing, to be respectful to officers, that he has family members in law enforcement. And so I think that that's what's added to their outrage. It's not even just the horrific loss of their their son. It is that, you know, they've talked extensively about how they raised their son to do the right thing and be respectful and even trained him on how to properly use a gun. And his mother yesterday was actually in New York City where she was due to speak at a convention for civil rights leader Al Sharpton's group. And she went before the cameras and was deeply emotional and angry. I am mad. I am disgusted with Minneapolis, Minnesota. This country is, is still a disappointment in 2022. We have rights. We vote. We carry legal firearms. And y'all still think that we don't matter. Amir is more than a hashtag. We're going to continue the fight for the no-knock warrant bans in honor of his name for Breonna Taylor. This cannot happen to nobody else. And said she wishes that she could remove any hint of Minneapolis from her son's birth certificate and from her son's death certificate because she was so angry and she never thought it would be her son, but it was. After the break, how did police even end up in that apartment confronting Amir Locke? We'll be right back. So, Holly, why were the police in the home where Amir Locke was in the first place? You know, like, what have the police said about why they were there? And there's body camera footage, right? So what has that shown? And does that match up with what police have said happened? The backdrop of this was a... January homicide in St. Paul. A man named Otis Elder was standing outside a music studio and cameras caught the aftermath of what police in St. Paul say was a a robbery. Um, He was apparently conducting a drug deal um, and he was robbed in the middle of it and shot. And so the St. Paul Police Department had tracked a suspect car And that car had been used in other robberies. And it came to be that they identified the person in the car as Mackay Speed, who 
was Amir Locke's 17-year-old cousin. A Minneapolis police officer in late January saw this car parked at a parking garage near the downtown apartment where Mackay Speed and his family lived. And so the St. Paul Police Department got a search warrant and they asked the Minneapolis police to carry it out. The Minneapolis SWAT officers said that they would not carry out this warrant unless it was a no-knock warrant. The St. Paul police in the original warrant had asked, you know, had asked for something uh, of people, you know, knocking on the door during the daytime hours. And the Minneapolis police, this Minneapolis SWAT team said, we feel like this is too dangerous. These are homicide suspects and we were not going to do it without a no knock. And so that's how the Minneapolis SWAT team ended up outside the door, apartment 702 of a downtown Minneapolis apartment building. And it you know, ended up with the shooting of Amir Locke. Holly, what do we know about who Officer Mark Hanneman is? Mark Hanneman has been a longtime police officer who joined the Minneapolis force in July 2015. He's had a lot of different shifts, but most recently was assigned to the SWAT team. What we know is that there have been some complaints filed against him. Most have been dismissed. We don't know what those complaints were exactly because the Minneapolis Police Department does not disclose the subject of complaints. And we know that there was a complaint that was still open against him that has still not been resolved. He was placed on, you know, typical administrative leave, but Minneapolis Police Spokesman told me yesterday that he had returned to work on February 28th and is doing other things and is not working for the SWAT team anymore. So Holly, we're, we're sitting here talking on Thursday morning. Can you explain to me that there has been some body camera footage released, but, but what else are we waiting for? There was body camera footage released in the days after Locke's killing. Um, a very brief clip, it's about 10 seconds long, but we're expecting to see the other body camera footage from body cameras worn by other officers at the scene. Throughout the report, the prosecution investigative report That was released on Wednesday. It cites footage from other officers, including Mark Hanneman, the officer who fired the fatal shots at Amir Locke. One of the things that Mark Hanneman claims is that he fired the gun because he saw Amir Locke pointing the gun at him. And in the initial footage that was released in February, there's some debate. I mean, the gun appears aimed towards the ground. We never see Amir Locke's finger on the trigger. So we're waiting to see this other footage of other perspectives at the scene to sort of get a better understanding of what exactly happened. And this might be obvious when we even use the term no-knock warrant, what a no-knock warrant is. But can you help parse apart, like, how does a no-knock warrant differ from how warrants are usually served? How And how is it that police can get one? to enter people's homes without warning, you know, even in the dead of night? Well, usually you have to knock on the door and give a certain amount of time for someone to answer the door before you go in. But the body camera footage that was clearly released showed the officers knocking on the door and basically entering at the exact same time and not really announcing before they went in. They said SWAT team, and then they immediately entered, as opposed to a regular warrant where you do have to knock for a certain period of time. The St. Paul Police Department has not 
used no-knock warrants. A representative, I talked to him you know, earlier about this case, and they said that they didn't feel that a no-knock warrant was necessary. They didn't ask for one. They don't use them. But the Minneapolis police said that they wouldn't do it without it. Part of the outrage here in Minneapolis is that this is something that the Minneapolis mayor claimed had been banned. Yet, if you read the fine print of what he had initially done last fall, it was just this wide loophole for the police to continue doing it. They were describing it as unannounced warrants. And so that's how this basically sort of went down. Yeah. And when we talk about no-knock warrants and botched raids, you know, the most high-profile recent case was the killing of Breonna Taylor at the hands of police. And to be clear, no one was ever technically charged with her death. Um, and there's still a lot of outrage about that. And so when we think of Minneapolis and everything the city has been through when it comes to policing and accountability, is there a sort of whiplash here where here's this officer who will not be facing charges and authorities are basically saying there's nothing they can do at this point? Yesterday, I kept thinking about almost a year ago, standing on outside the courthouse when a jury convicted Derek Chauvin of murdering George Floyd. And I remember the city being so on edge, no one believed that there would be a conviction, or if there was a conviction, it wouldn't be on all charges. When a jury convicted him of all charges, I remember being outside and seeing people crying and such joy. And this was, and sort of grabbing at this decision as this is change, this is progress. And then you sort of speed forward now. And a lot of people have started to say, well, what has changed here in Minneapolis? The Minneapolis Police Department continues to be under state and federal investigations for their policing practices. And then at the same time, you, you have cases like this where, you know, Amir Locke was fatally shot by an officer. There's just such deep distrust on both sides, quite frankly, between the community and the police here. I think, you know, one of the things that's very interesting is that initially after Amir Locke's killing Mayor Jacob Fry said, I'm, I'm, I'm really doing, I'm really doing it this time. We are instituting a ban. We are announcing a prohibition on both the application for and the execution of no-knock slash no-announce search warrants. But if you read the fine print, it gave the police still this like loophole to use it for imminent threat or what they perceive to be imminent threat. And that's very interesting because if you listen to the scanner or you are on the street and you observe the relationship between the police and people here, the police are on edge. And I think that they view a lot of things as imminent threat. When you talk to people here, there is this level of there's no control and we don't know what they're going to do. And a lot of people fear the police here. And so that's, you know, just still hanging over the city, a city that is trying so hard to move past what has been an extremely traumatic period. I think people are trying to stay positive about it, but it's just going to take a long time for people to feel comfortable here, again, especially people of color. Have you heard anything from Second Amendment activists or groups um, weighing in on this case, given that Amir Locke had a permit to carry a gun? And, you know, this is a country where that that is a debate and a topic, you know, of of uh, 
people are allowed to have guns permitted in their homes to protect themselves. And and here's a situation where you're sleeping and all of a sudden there's a commotion and people are are barging in your home and, and what a gun owner might do in that situation. There has not been a lot of comment on this from from Second Amendment supporters. And that is part of the outrage. I mean, Ben Crump, the civil rights attorney who is representing the Locke family, expressed this sentiment yesterday. He was like, where is the outrage from the NRA? He's never had a criminal history, has a permit to carry a gun. He goes to protect himself. Where is the Second Amendment supporters for Black people who have a right to bear arms? They keep promoting Second Amendment gun rights to protect your home, to protect your sanctuary. Well, that applies to Black people, too. Where is the outrage from gun owners? Because this could happen to you, whether you're Black or white or whatever. And I think that there's a lot of anger about that. And that was a question sort of put to the prosecutors yesterday of how can police barge into someone's house and they legally own a gun and this happens and there's not charges, there's no punishment. Um, so I think that's going to be another interesting issue to watch because they're really saying this this could happen to anybody. So at this point, it doesn't seem like this is going to go to trial, that the officer will be facing charges. What does that say about about where our justice system is now, whether nationally or, you know, just in Minneapolis and and how limited it is as it stands now to to hold people accountable, you know, given that the prosecutor has referred to Amir Locke as a victim. I believe that we've not seen the last of this. There may not be criminal charges in this case, but almost certainly Amir Locke's family is likely to sue the city of Minneapolis and the Minneapolis Police Department. And so there could be, you know, a trial in that regards, or what has been the case for many years now, the city of Minneapolis will settle the case and it will never go to trial. I think people, all the hope that they felt after the result of the Derek Chauvin trial, a police officer finally being held account for what the public perceived to be wrong, that has faded. And I think there's going to be increased pressure once again to institute reforms in the Minneapolis Police Department. But that's the thing is that a lot of people here just simply feel that you cannot reform this police department, no matter how many times city officials promise that they're trying to make changes, no matter how many times police officers say that they're trying to get the right kind of people on the streets and that they're kind of they're trying to reform their policies and they acknowledge their wrongdoing. I think there's going to be a lot of interest in what happens with this Justice Department investigation. They're doing a patterns and practices investigation into the Minneapolis Police Department right now. But all these things, it's just a cloud hanging over the city and a cloud hanging over the police department. And it's not vanished and it's heavy. Holly, thank you for making time. Thank you. Holly Bailey is a national correspondent for The Washington Post based in Minneapolis. The story was produced by Ariel Plotnick.
And now, one more thing. Under the previous order, all post-closure time has expired. The question occurs on the nomination of Katanji Brown Jackson of the District of Columbia to be an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. The clerk will call the roll. Mr. Blunt, no. Mr. Booker. Mr. Booker, aye. Mr. Bozeman. Mr. Bozeman, no. Mr. Braun. The Senate has confirmed Katanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. On this vote, the yeas are 53, the nays are 47, and this nomination is confirmed. Jackson will be the first black woman to sit on the nation's highest bench. She will replace Justice Stephen Breyer, and she's expected to be sworn in this summer. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Lexi Diao, with production help from Julie Deppenbrock and Renny Svernovsky. On tomorrow's show, we are playing the first episode of our new six-part series called Broken Doors. Broken Doors is an investigative podcast that looks at how these no-knock warrants are deployed in the American justice system and what happens when accountability is flawed at every level. The first three episodes drop this week. Check it out. And before you go, Post Reports has been nominated for two Webby Awards. If you love us, and we know you do, vote for us. It's a great way to spread the word about the show. We'll drop a link in our show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Elahe Izadi. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.